0: Hello, everyone. This is Mihai Gino, and you're listening to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Carolyn Finney, currently an assistant professor of environmental science, policy, and management at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of Black Faces, White Spaces, Reimagining the Relationship of African Americans to the Great Outdoors, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Professor Finney, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great. Good. Well, I wonder if you'd uh, just begin by telling us a bit about yourself, in particular... Uh, how you became a geographer, or perhaps um, how you came to your current uh, professional position.
1: Yeah. Sometimes when people ask me that question, I'm like, well, a long time ago in a land far, far away. uh, You know, like a lot of folks, I haven't had, uh, this hasn't been a linear approach. I haven't followed a straight line in my life. And so uh, when I first went to college, two years ago, I dropped out because I wanted to pursue an acting career, which I did for 11 years in New York and L.A. Uh, And after that there was about a five-year period um, where I I did a backpacking trip around the world, which just. Literally changed my life, and over the course of a few years after that, I would save my money any way I could, and then I went backpacking on my own through Africa for six months, and then I um, eventually ended up in the country of Nepal, where I lived for a year and a half. And it was during all of this experience that I started thinking about going back to school and and what would I go back to do. And so, initially, when I went back, I was thinking international development, women's issues, which is what I did to finish my. undergrad degree, uh, which I did at Western Washington University in Washington State, and then I went on to do a master's degree in Utah, and then I went on to do a PhD, so I'm kind of like an accidental geographer, because I, I was interested in people, you know, very specifically in issues of difference, and I was looking at gender, very particularly. And when I was taking my master's, a lot of the courses I was taking cross-listed with geography. I didn't actually know anything about geography because like a lot of folks, I thought geography was about maps and I love maps. Um, but that's what I thought it was about. And then I really came to understand that geography is about the intersection or the relationship between people and place. So while sociology and anthropology may look largely at the culture and the way society is organized at the people piece, very specifically, geography tries to look at both those things, people and place. And I really like that. And so You know, when professors were saying to me, why don't you go on and get a doctorate? And I was kind of loving what I was doing. It's also great to be an older student and have a better sense of who you are and what it is you want to do. I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to be a geographer. And so I went and got my Ph.D. in geography and cultural geography or feminist geography, both of which I say is the kind of geography I'm engaged in. I was really interested in. I have um, a strong humanity spent because of my years spent in the arts. And I, I sort of bring that with me. And so that, yeah, that got me here. I finished my Ph.D. maybe nine years ago. I did a postdoctoral position at Wellesley in Environmental Studies um, And then found myself with this job at Berkeley. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of the broad strokes, cliff notes version (laughs) of how I got here. Of course, there's a lot of other stuff in between um, and I can talk more specifically about this project, how I came to it, but yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah, we definitely uh, want to hear um, about how you came uh, to write um, uh, Black Faces, White Spaces. Um, And your uh the preface to the book, um you sort of discuss your your narrative strategy, the strategy you used uh to approach yes. the material by sort of combining um cultural studies, critical race theories, environmental uh, studies. Um and and I wonder if you would sort of take us through uh why this was um, why this was your approach way of go. choice.
1: Yeah. So, you know, in about so when I started my PhD in 1999, what I originally thought I was going to do was look at gender and conservation issues in Nepal. I had spent a lot of time there. I loved that. You know, I got a Fulbright. That's what I was going to do. But at the beginning of my PhD, it's like when you start taking classes, I started thinking a lot about the issue of race and very particularly the experiences of African-Americans as an African-American and also looking at my family. Um, and so I'll come back to a minute why, you know, I wanted sort of to tell the story because it's really grounded in my passion of wanting to tell part of my parents, my family's story on land. Uh-huh. Um, But what I found was, so when I decided, you know, I went off to do the work in Nepal, but there was political unrest there in 2001, I couldn't finish that work. And so I came back and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do a whole new proposal. I'm going to focus on African-Americans and the environment. And when you're in school, you know, know, the first thing I did, I sort of got on the Internet and said, well – you know, let me Google African Americans and Environment and see what comes up. Because when you go to the library, there aren't shelves and shelves of books that say, you know, African Americans sure. and the Environment, you know. Right, right. And so I thought, boy, I'm going to have to start looking in other places. The other thing is, in terms of my own politics, is the recognition that historically in the United States, African-Americans haven't always been allowed to, invited to participate in traditional spaces of knowledge production, like the academy, right? For instance, Um, but it doesn't mean we haven't been producing knowledge about ourselves, by ourselves and for ourselves. We do it in art, we do it in music, we do it um, uh, through storytelling, we do it in multiple ways, quilt making. We have a way of talking about who we are and defining who we are. And what I wanted to do, was value that equally to, you know, peer-reviewed, cited journal issues that I found in the library. I also wanted to cite um, those stories, those experiences, that embodied knowledge that um, African-Americans historically have had and have created um, for us. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's like, so part of it was I had to, I had to open up and challenge, you know, what what kind of knowledge counts? I had to ask that question for myself. Part of it was because people like my parents, who have a high school education, um, but have and have worked hard all their lives, and have 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 a lot of knowledge that isn't recognized or represented, or that they don't actually know how to engage and understand I wanted to be able to, for their story to have value and weight not just be an anecdote that I tell but say that it actually counts for something you know it counts for something even if we haven't figured out yet how to co- co- commodify and use that in academic sense in the way that is legible for us in academia um and you know what and it's way more fun because it' you know, <laughs> You start looking at the ways we have just been creative in music, you know, how we write songs. So you look at the song Strange Fruit and understanding, you know, Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit and what that's about, right? That that song is about lynching. The way, just the complexity of being able to sing a song uh, with words that are really embedded in a part of our history of segregation and lynching. I mean, it's powerful the ways that we've created knowledge about ourselves, We've done it despite of, in spite of being limited to um, certain
0: spaces and being limited in all kinds of ways. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. And you, you sort of address, uh, again, this, this approach more fully in the notes to the preface at the end yeah. of the book where you, uh, where you reference um, uh, Mary Patrice Erdman's uh, book about the, the role of the personal narrative in scholarly texts. Yeah. Um, and so, so it is really apparent, um, in the book that this is both a, a sort of academic treatise as well as a, um, a memoir of sorts, uh, of you, Yes. Of your and, and, and I, when you reminded me of that, um, Muriel,
1: Mar- I want to say that it's also about, what it means to be who I am. So I always tell people that I believe all knowledge is subjective. That I believe that we bring all of who we are to bear upon anything it is we're trying to understand. And you know that's not always the case. That's not always the what people believe, especially in science. You know, oftentimes people talk about knowledge being objective, that we can somehow stand back from that. But I believe that actually we bring everything of who we are to bear upon something. And you know, in terms of how we interpret it, how we disseminate it, you know, how we write it up. Um, is really important to acknowledge. And when I look at someone like myself as the only African-American tenure track person in, the, in my department at Berkeley, in the College of Natural Resources at Berkeley, it's, it that means something too. So part of that sort of wanting to personally place myself is a subjective stance, is a feminist stance, but it's also acknowledging you know, my own in, embodied experience in a space that traditionally has not been one where people who look like me can show up and create knowledge on this. And I want to draw attention to that. And plenty have drawn attention to it before me. Bell Hooks, Toni Morrison, there are people, you know, um, incredible women and
0: men, too, who
1: have talked about these issues. So, yeah, I wanted to point to
0: that. Yeah, that's great. And um, um, sort of moving in, um, moving into the into the book, beginning with the uh, with the introduction yeah. um, where you, you start to talk about, you start, start with a number of themes that you continue throughout the book. One of which is um, the, the, the way popular media helped to create a perception uh, essentially that, that African-Americans are uh, on the outside looking in, in terms of environmental uh, discussions. Um, and, one of the things, again, to to some of the points that you've just made, um, your own use of um, of popular media is very interesting. Some of the uh, just to give just to give the listeners a sense um, of the some of the chapter titles reference uh, Spike Lee films like Bamboozled um, and Jungle Fever and so on and so forth. So, I want uh, I really love it if you would talk um, both about the ideas of racialization and representation of African Americans in the popular media and your own relationship to um, to the popular media in your work?
1: Well, so you know, popular media, right? So popular media, newspapers and television and magazines, you know, imagery that we see, popular media is created by people, right? It's created by people with a particular point of view, bad, good, indifferent, you know, it's actually not even the point for me. It's just a way of understanding and seeing the world. And also people who have the opportunity to express that in popular media. And, you know, these representations, as well as these narratives, these stories we tell, take hold in very particular ways, you know. It's really, And we see with the Internet today how things can really take hold really quickly. I'm looking at that crazy thing about the gold and white dress, or is it a black and blue dress? I mean, <laughs> that thing just went, you know, crazy. Like when we were talking about it, we're still talking about it, right? Uh, so I think about the power those representations have. And for me, there's always... Um, I always want to understand, you know, who made those representations? What are they telling us? And what are the quote-unquote truth or accuracy behind those representations? What are the, What is the intention behind it? Um, and I wanted to point to, you know, so like things like calling a couple of my chapters after Spike Lee Films and doing that very intently, you know, I partly did that because I wanted to recognize and honor someone like Spike Lee, who has created, whether you like his film. Has played a significant role in creating stories and narratives and representation about African American experience and African American history broadly defined in this country. And I wanted to point to that, you know, how he's not in acad- academia and he's still quite powerful in terms of the the places um films have had out there in the world, uh, and the dual meanings that I think he you know that he was pointing to. And I wanted to sort of borrow that a little bit. I also you like to use popular media because. I don't know if use the term democratic, but just I'm interested in accessibility. I'm interested in what it means to talk about and write about anything with depth and complexity in a way that all kinds of people can engage. You know, when I went back to school, I knew what was true. I better be able to come home and talk to my parents about what I'm doing without sounding highfalutin and, you know, just like they can't understand, like they're somehow not as smart as me. I should be able to talk to them in in a way that still reveals the depth and complexity that respects and honors the way that they understand and see the world and they should be able to engage with me. And so I write using popular media because popular media is popular for for one reason the public can engage it. All kinds of people look at popular media and images and stories. And I thought I mean I want to I'm part of that I'm part of that public too. So I wanted to be able to use it. Yeah, I guess to open up that have the widest possibility of um, of engagement by the by the biggest group of people possible, diverse in all kinds of ways. That you shouldn't need a college degree to engage with the ideas, and it doesn't make the ideas any less rigorous, powerful, or deep.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, it absolutely, did. Absolutely. absolutely, Excuse me, it does make sense? Yeah, um, and again, I think that's really evident uh, both in the um, in the way you approach. Um, this particular uh book um now one of the, one of the things that i uh, also wanted to talk about um, or have you talk about rather is um is the your choice of research sites which i found really interesting and again we're sort of uh, still in the in the introduction to the the book um where you Outline um, your some of your central research questions and, and methodology, which we'll we'll get to as we as we go further along. But I wanted, um, if you could please uh, talk talk to us about the research sites. Um, you know what they are and why uh, why they were chosen. Oh yeah, I can. And first,
1: I, I need to back up a little bit and tell people because it's connected why I wanted to write this book. Yeah. right because if I talk about that it, then then this the choice of the sites and the and the way to do it the way to do the research actually starts to make a little more sense so during what I haven't what I say right in the beginning of the book, I talk a little bit about where I'm from, and I grew up in New York, and we're about thirty minutes outside of the city in Westchester County. My parents come from Floyd uh, County in Virginia, and they grew up, you know, poor black folks like a lot of people did um, during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And when my dad came back from the Korean War, he decided that he and my mother, like a lot of black folks, said, you know, we're gonna move north because we're gonna have some better opportunities. And when my father got to New York, he had two job options. One, he He could be a uh, janitor in Syracuse, New York, which was about five hours north of the city, or... About 30 minutes outside of New York City, there was an estate, and it was owned by a very wealthy Jewish family, the Tishmans, who have a building and own lots of real estate in Manhattan. They had a 12-acre estate, uh, peach trees, um, vegetable gardens, flower gardens, a lake, a pool. Uh, There was a big house that the Tishmans would come up to on weekends and holidays, and a gardener's cottage. And what they needed were some people to live full-time and care for that property, 12 acres of land. And so, my parents took that job. My father was the chauffeur, the gardener, the caretaker, and my mom was the sometime housekeeper on that land. When they moved on that land, um they wanted to have kids thought they couldn't have kids. So they adopted me. And then a couple of years later, they had my first brother. And then a few years after that, my second <laughs> brother. Um, and so we grew up in this very wealthy white neighborhood, the only family of color. Uh, and my brothers and I playing outside on this property. I'll, I'm going to jump ahead. There's a lot of stories I have about that place. But to j- jump ahead a little bit, um, by 2000, by the 1990s, Mrs. Tishman was was ill. Uh, Mr. Tishman had died many years before. Mrs. Tishman was ill, and so there was concern about what's going to happen to my parents when Mrs. Tishman passes away. And Mrs. Tishman and my father have a complicated relationship. They were very close. uh, And she was very concerned for my family. And to her credit, she wanted to try to keep my parents on this land. Because remember, they had been caring for this land um, by 2000 for almost 50 years. And they knew the land better than anyone else, right? And so uh, the short story is that wasn't going to work out. The property taxes on that land at that time in the 90s, it was over $125,000 a year, which my parents could have never afforded. Uh, and so in the end, she had a beautiful home built for them in Leedsburg, Virginia, on about a half an acre of land. And um, she passed away. My parents stayed on um, till about 2003 while the house was being built. There was a new owner that had come in on this property um, in Westchester. And then my parents moved down to Leesburg in 2003. And this is right around when I was deciding to write a proposal to do my dissertation on this subject. And it was because my parents, particularly my father has been depressed ever since. And, um, it talks a lot about missing the land, missing New York. And it started me asking the question, first for my family, you know, what does ownership mean? Whose ownership actually counts? My parents cared for that land for 50 years. They knew it better than anyone else, including the owners. But they could never afford to really be on that land. And then I started thinking about, in the history of our country, how many different groups of people are largely invisible in that conversation about land ownership and caring for natural resources, and then I started thinking about the mainstream environmental movement that would I don't think would recognize my parents as being environmentalists. And my parents would never call themselves environmentalists. Right. And, and I had to push back on what, what does that actually mean? These people cared for that land, could tell you everything about the changing wildlife on that property, why a tree might get a certain kind of fungus on it. They took care of that land. Um, And so that was the motivation to do the book. So I thought, okay, so how can I tell this story in a wider sense? Because this wasn't going to be a story about my parents. I talk about it for a short bit in the beginning of the book and at the very, very end. But I wanted to connect it to some larger issues of of the African-American experience around the environment. And I started thinking about national parks. And I started thinking about national parks because when national parks were created, they were largely created to represent... um, it meant to be an American. How, what do we show the rest of the world? We don't have the cathedrals like Europe has, but what we do have is Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Yellowstone, these incredible wilderness areas that we can create and use. And so I started thinking about that. Ah, so this is was supposed to represent what it means to be American. But you know, when those parks are being created, there was Jim Crow segregation and, they, and Native people were removed from a lot of those lands. And we have lots of stories like this. So it's a lot more complicated than that. And I thought, well, why don't I want to go to a place where there is a significant number of African Americans, and there's a history of that. I thought, I have to go to the South, right, because there's a very particular history of Blacks in the South. But where are there also some national park sites? And so really, when I started doing some research, Florida kind of came up to the surface, because you have Everglades National Park, and in the early 2000s, you had the largest um, you know, kind of ecological restoration happening there um, in terms of the money and resources that were being poured in. You have Biscayne National Park, which is also down there, and you have uh, Big Cypress National Preserve, and they're all within an hour and a half or so of each other. I mean, they're all within the area. And I thought, so you've got these three kind of natural areas, these park areas. It, it, It would allow me a way to talk about the issue of American identity and how that's connected to the way we've constructed ideas about conservation and wilderness, and what does that mean when you roll race into the into the equation, and what does that mean when you specifically roll African American, the African American experience into the equation. And then I realized, I said, I don't just want to talk to black folks in Florida. I realized I have to speak to black folks around the country, I mean, who work in a variety of um, capacities in relationship to their community and their environment. So that's kind of the short version of why I decided to situate myself in Florida for a year. But I was fortunate enough and privileged enough to get enough funding that I was then flying all around the country and spending a couple of days with people In in, um, different areas of the country to talk about their experience of being Black and the environment where they lived. Um, Though I spent a significant time in Florida and let me just say this, Florida, South Florida has some amazing stories. I mean, we know Zora Neale Hurston who is just one of my, you know, I mean, I just kind of look to Zora all the time for inspiration. But um, stories like Mavi Betch and the Beach Lady that I talk about, stories of the highwaymen, the black painters who painted scenes of the Florida landscape down there. I got to speak to one of the Tuskegee Airmen. I mean, I spoke to such a wide variety of black people who are doing amazing things um, in Florida, having to do with place and environment there that I didn't know existed until I got there. So I, I, I just felt like I got lucky, like I just discovered this jewel and then it's got me thinking to all the other states that we probably have all these jewels of black experience and black story that we don't know about that I'd love to uncover.
0: Yeah. And, and so that takes us, um, that takes us really nicely kind of to the heart of your, um, to that first chapter where you talk um, about um, national parks, um, both as, as places that spaces and places that reflect national identity and environmental values and so on as they've been um, enacted in, in, a specifically American context. Um, and an interesting point that you raise in this, in, in that first chapter that uh, again, you raise in, um, in, in later chapters is uh, the fact that, that this isn't um, uh, the national parks, among other things are not immune to these processes of, of representation and, and racialization. Um, yeah. and, yeah, and I, 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 I actually let me take let me take a moment just to, to mention that I uh, learned of your book uh, through a friend uh, who's actually on the um, faculty at the University of Arizona by way of a New New Republic article that came out in September of 2013, and so a friend of the friend commented um, and made a reference to your uh, to your book, um, and so the, the the New Republic article um, uh, is the you know titled. <laughs> Um, titled, uh, white people, white people love hiking. Minorities don't. Here's why. So it's a very sort of summary. (laughs) So it's a, it's a very summary article and, uh, and, and, uh, your book is, is mercifully much more, um, expansive on the topic, but this article comes to some very, uh, swift judgments about, you know, uh, why minorities essentially don't love hiking or, you know, and, and, um, which I guess we, 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 we take as um, synecdoche for, for uh, engagement in environmental issues. But I, I, I'm wondering uh, if on the heels of that, you can, again, sort of talk, um, talk about um, this intersection between uh, racialization and representation um, and perhaps how it might uh how we might be talking about low participation in outdoor recreation—that um, that sort of thing, because that that's something that comes up um, again and again.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I have so many things to say. Let me, um, you know, first of all, you know, I feel that there's a way in the United States. And let me just preface everything by saying that I am no way speaking for all black people. So I just, I I usually say it at the beginning of any of these conversations. So I want to be sure that I say that. Um, I also think that there's a way in this country that the two frameworks we use about our collective relationship to the, the environment or natural resources for me is either the environment as a supermarket of resources, as a friend of mine, Kaylin trees has said, um, that is a supermarket of resources, or that's a place where we can recreate. Um, and those are the two kind of dominant frameworks we use. And we've got a whole lot of people who have other ways of interacting with the and thinking about the outdoors. My parents, not not the least among them. You know, for them, it's about work. You know, so people think about it in terms of work. I think about particularly Native um, communities that may think about it in terms of sacred space. I mean, there's all different kinds of ways people think about the environment in the outdoors, but they're not necessarily recognized or privileged in our conversation. Um, So, you know, even, so when I think about, you know, Black people don't hike, I mean, without having read the article, I mean, I I understand the humor in that because I, I hear people say, there's funny, there's a, there's a website that, that interviewed um, real life black folks about black people don't care. Or um, there's a academic article called the unbearable whiteness of skiing. Um, right, right. There's all kinds of articles that reference you know this idea that as black folks, and, and I'm careful not to use the term minorities for multiple reasons, but right. in term, talking about black folks, you know that we are not out there doing those things, and therefore the assumption is we don't have a relationship to the environment or we don't care. Mm-hmm. And for me. So that's the first mistake that that that, that assumption is made, right? Which I think is a wrong assumption for so many reasons. First of all, people hear me say this all the time. I'm like, are you breathing? You have a relationship with the environment. If you think that you are actually surviving, you know, without having a relationship, you need to think, think again. Number one, number two, that, that hiking and recreating is the primary way we do it. And in some instances, people think it's really the only way to show that we have a relationship, which also implies that there is no nature outside of the city. So therefore, Right. You got to go to the parks. And I'm all, you know, I am I sit on the National Parks Advisory Board. Parks are beautiful. But nature is everywhere. I love the city. I'm an urban girl. Be, let me tell you. I mean, yes, I've backpacked and done all of that. I like to tell people I've got my fleece. I got some fleece up in my closet. <laughs> But if you see me, people know I'm urban. I'm from New York, you know, and I'm very urban in the way. And I'm, I look outside my window. I'm sitting here in my apartment in, in downtown Berkeley, which isn't a big city, but it's you know, next to San Francisco. And it, I see nature is everywhere. And so, you know, what becomes invisible in a conversation about the black environmental relationship? If, if the only way we can measure that or the primary way we measure that is about how many black people show up in the park and go hiking, then we're, we're, we're missing out on all the diverse ways that we as a diverse people <laughs> actually engage and think about a um, natural environment. So I'll give you an example. So in Florida, for instance, where I was in South Florida, yes, you've got those three amazing park spaces, but you know, if you drive in Southern Florida, because you've got, you know so much of the areas is actually the everglades beyond the park lines it's swamp area there's a lot of canals what you see all, all the time are black and brown people fishing mm-hmm. all the time every day right that is a very that is engaging the natural environment that is having a relationship but it's often not counted it becomes invisible so because they're not going to the national park but they are out every day. They're out with their sons or jo- daughters. They're fishing. They're getting food for dinner. Maybe they're just relaxing. Um, so it's really also training ourselves differently to look at and see people the kinds of people we expect to see, but also what we expect to see them doing. We need to redefine what does having a relationship with the environment mean and look like here in the 21st century. So when John Muir was talking about it in 1875, and he had very particular ideas about preservation and wilderness as something separate from human beings, right? Um, what does that mean today? Like Because, I mean we have different needs we're different people we're also very a very diverse people even among African Americans we're very diverse in what we like and how we show up and where we live and so how do we take that into consideration that's
0: great yeah and well and and um that's a that's a really beautiful bridge to um both the um I just wanted to to mention that uh at the end of that first uh, chapter um has a, a sort of call to action um, where you where you say that it's you know incumbent upon all of us to uh, reconsider again these uh, experiences and configurations of human and uh, human environment interactions,
1: um,
0: yes. and uh, to to sort of dwell a little bit um, um, on this on this point. Um, and actually, it's a point that you make more explicitly uh, later in the book about there being no sort of monolithic. You know, Afri- African American environmental experience. Kind of uh, state that in in your in your fifth chapter. Um, I I wonder if you if you would uh, sort of talk a little bit more about that because one of the things that I, that I was uh, struck with is the this the same New Republic article in turn references or is a response to a New York Times piece specifically about the National Park Service um, and and um, and their attempt to appeal to minorities. And some of the folks featured in the New York times article were sort of first generation African-Americans, right. So Dominican parentage or, you know, and that sort of thing. So I I wonder um, if you can um, talk a little bit about that uh, some more about that breadth of experience that might be informed by again, different uh, backgrounds.
1: Uh, let me see if I understood you. So the breadth of experience.
0: So in, in other words, there, there's a. Uh, that, yeah, go ahead. I was going
1: to say, so in terms of my comment on monolithic, you know, that there is no monolithic African-American experience.
0: Right. And and, the, right. and so and, you know, it's, it's a it's. I think beyond the scope of the book in in a sense, but I was just interested in getting your, um, your take on that, this idea that, um, because you were just mentioning not wanting to talk about say minorities as a group for any number of reasons, which, and and that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Yeah. But to also talk, talk about both, you know, African-Americans, you know, divided, like you were, you were mentioning generationally um, say the difference between your parents generation or regionally. um, And I wondered if we could expand that into sort of the diaspora or, you know, people who might be African-Americans, but not necessarily um, born in the States or born to um, immigrant parents or something like that, and how that might um, inform their relationships differently.
1: Yeah. I, I think what I, so a couple of things, you know, so one of the reasons, two of the reasons, I'll give you two reasons why I um, I refrain from using the term minority anymore, actually, is one, because it covers such a wide group of people without doing, I mean, with our diversity. Um, and, and just as a total footnote, you know, if we look at our demographics, who is the minority is actually shifting, depending on where it is you're talking about. Right. Um, and number two is that that by using that term minority it's really understanding historically what we're saying because minority implies that someone who's been a minority <laughs> for such a long time it somehow paints us not at conversation not part of the dominant narrative not whatever our experiences may be collectively aren't considered important enough or they're on the edge or there's something else they're other right and so i'm interested in you know How do we move forward and have a different conversation about black people or any people, for that matter, that are different than the dominant culture uh, in a way that doesn't um, deprivilege them? Like if if we're always talking about a group of people as being a minority, we we start the conversation from a place of lack. Does that make sense? Absolutely. yeah, so it's like, you know, because I think we have to work really hard collectively in the United States to shift the way we have conversations about difference and about people who are different from us. So, okay, so now I can jump to, you know, thinking about African-Americans and there isn't a monolithic experience. And it's why I also said, you know, I, I don't speak for all African-Americans. I would never pretend I could or would want to even because we are all really different, just like any group of people, right? We're really different, diverse. We come from different backgrounds. We Live in different areas. We have different points of view. Uh, we don't always like each other or agree with each other just because we're <laughs> black, you know. What I mean, and I also think there's some collective American experience that we can all point to that has affected us in particular ways: slavery, Jim Crow segregation, and even let's jump to today and talk about you know um, Ferguson and other things like that that are happening with the criminal justice system. There's things that we come to understand collectively, even though we may interpret them differently in our own lives. Um, and I want to point to that diversity and say, you know, just because, uh, you know, when I would do backpacking in Nepal, and I had no black people even said to me, backpacking in Nepal, that's not a black thing to do. Right, <laughs> you know, right. This idea that blackness is somehow defined by, uh, narrowly defined by a set of activities and practices that I think partially has been placed upon us historically. And so in many ways, I think we've internalized that to understand that we think, well, if we do X, Y, and Z, we're not really Black enough. Um, And I think it's also partially in response to a country that historically did not recognize us or honor us as full human beings. And then when it hit the 60s, we had enough of that, right? We were all about Black is beautiful, you know, Black power. We want to define for ourselves who we are. But at the same time, as the, the two black um, psychiatrists who wrote Black Rage at that time said, but have we also shrunk our ledge of who we are? So if you hike in Nepal, are you black enough? If you like to go camping, are you black enough? If you fly fish or, you know, I mean, all of these things, you know, the idea that somehow our, our, our definition of what it means to be African-American uh, is, is somehow limited, you know, it's like limiting ourselves. And so, yeah, it's not monolithic. I mean, and there's so much I haven't discovered and, and, and don't know about what black folks like to do. You know, one of the things I found out in Florida, I interviewed this black man who was part of the National Black Brotherhood of Skiers and found out that was the oldest ski organization in the United States. Oh, there you go. The National <laughs> Black Brotherhood of Skiers. <laughs> I'm talking to a dude in Florida. I mean, there's so many contradictions. God, you know, I mean, just I, you know, a lot of my own assumptions about what we may not do and just understanding that, you know, we just have to open up our mind a little bit to imagine uh, that we are diverse. We have different things to offer. Um and I would want to, you know, say something to the, you know, I say something all the time to folks in the mainstream environmental movement, a lot of well-meaning, you know, well-intentioned people who are working. And uh, you know, and I can see the stories that they show over and over again and the ones they don't. In the myth of black people don't, you know, come to the parks and they don't do that. I'm not saying that in the parks there aren't a lot of black people. I think there aren't a lot of black people in the parks. And I think there are multiple reasons for why that is. I know that the Park Service and others are working on that, um, but don't presume that that means we don't have an intense and deep relationship with the environment because we do. We have historically, and we do now.
0: Right, right, and and again, and, and this is something that you um, that you touch on in multiple points, right? You reference, I think, Stuart, Stuart Hall um, and sort of talking about how how reductive these binaries are, um, both in in terms of. Um, you know, you're, you're either hiking, you know, and you're visible or you're not engaged. Um, and so uh, so this, that's a really interesting, um, really interesting trend um, in in the book. A really interesting thread, I think, is is what I
1: what I well, say. Well, think about, yeah. I mean, let me just say this in terms of binaries. I mean, the, one of the most foundational binaries to the conversation we have about human beings and the environment is the binary of humans and nature as though humans are separate from nature. Right. That is a very um, European um, Western perspective because it's not what native and it's not necessarily with native and other people in the world believe, right. you know, so we have started from a very foundation that has set us off on a course and a way of talking about human environment interactions that I'm not sure in this 21st century is really helpful for us mm-hmm. moving forward.
0: Fair enough. Well, let me, um, let me kind of urge us along a little bit, um, because there, mm-hmm. there just, there's, there's so much in the, in the book that I, um, that I'd really like for, um, for you to talk about and, um, and we won't have time to get to all of it. But, um, one of the things that, that you, that you discuss is this role of, uh, collective memory and why it's, um, why it's especially important. Um, and the, the influence say of everything from, um, slavery, uh, to, uh, on the, on the attitude uh, of, of some, some, not all, um, some African Americans to the land and that sort of thing. Um, in particular on, um, uh, let's see, this is in the third chapter of the book. Um, you argue that, um, that that African Americans on the whole have not developed the the skill to nurture their own needs grounded in um, their own imaginations outside of the white gaze and um, and so and this to me seemed like sort of the the, the flip side to that uh, two sides of the same coin with regard to collective um, memory and um, and you you talk about how holding on to uh, certain feeling certain feelings uh, these feelings can um, express them express itself in terms of environmental action and participation in some concrete ways. And I wondered if you would outline, um, those ways and, and talk to us a little bit about, again, um, the role of collective memory. Yeah.
1: Okay. I wanted to, I want to be sure, cause the first part of that that you quoted, I, I, I want to make sure that people listening understand that I'm not saying, I don't believe I was saying that African-Americans, um, it was something you said right before. I'm going to answer that second part of the question that you want me to. But there was something
0: you said about. Yeah, know, let I, me let me clarify because. that yeah. yeah I, t- I take your take your meaning, and that is really, really important. Um, yeah. Because the the passage that I that I'm referring to um, begins actually on on um, page 64 of the edition that I have. Um, and so it's talking about this sort of nostalgia wherein in, um, the, in the United States, there's sort of a desire to hold on to the, you know, the old days of the past, right? So we're, uh, lingering in, um, the direct quotas, we linger in memories that provide us some comfort because of their familiarity, particularly in times when the present is contentious and the future uncertain. Um, and so, uh, so there is an argument, uh, uh, made that the sort of holding on, um, can, can, can rob those holding on of the possibility of addressing, um, your, your own agency, right? So, um, so the, the idea that, that African-Americans might are, are also in danger in a different way, but also in danger of finding, um, security and anger. Um, in security, yeah. rather, in the anger and loss of the past.
1: Yes. And I want to say, and I'm not saying that the anger and loss isn't justified. And I, you know, because I point to the issue of agency and I say that I believe we all have agency. And what I mean by that is I believe we all have choice. We just don't all have the same choices at the same time. And I say that because one of the things that I I continue to learn and I saw in so many of the people I spoke to, particularly older African-Americans, is this resistance and resilience, this ability that in spite of any limitations placed in their lives, that they could still make choices and still find joy and just and make choices, and sometimes that anger was the motivating thing to do so, but the power to move beyond that anger in order to create something new for themselves and how important it was and is not to allow that sort of past narrative to kind of suck you in and, you know, suck away all your energy and ability to move forward. And so, um, yeah, that that is what I was pointing to. And when I think about ways in which we use collective memory and, and, and those moments, because I think it's important. I'm not about forgetting history. I'm all about connecting to history because it is connected. I believe there's a legacy. We live the legacy of what's happened in our past. And I think understanding our past helps us move forward. I ain't saying anything new because people have been saying that, you know, um, for a long time, what it means to be, to know we are connected. We are rooted in our history in very particular ways. I understand that I stand here today able to do what I'm able to do because of a lot of my ancestors and people who've come before who've made it possible. And I want to honor that without being stuck in it, which is a different thing. Right. It's like getting out of a bad relationship. I know that bad relationship has informed you, but you're not hanging on to that relationship because you also need to move on. right? Right. So I think about people like, um, there were so many people I spoke to who were doing projects having to do with the environment that was partially about, um, uh, Uh, keeping the memory alive of the African-American experience in place. So whether it was Mavine Betch, who um, is is originally from Amelia Island, which is off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida, and her sister is actually very well known in academic circles, Dr. Jeanetta Cole. Uh, Their great-grandfather, A.L. Lewis, had a life insurance company in Jacksonville back in the 40s, and he made a lot of money because of that. And because black people weren't allowed to go to the beach, during that time in the Florida. They couldn't go to the white beaches. Um, A.L. Lewis decided he just was gonna buy a strip of beach. And he did, he bought a strip of beach on Amelia Island. He called it American Beach. And this is where black folks could have a house on the beach. So janitors could live next door to judges. Um, Families could come play on this beach, which is quite lovely with sand dunes. And this is where Mavin grew up. And Mavin ended up going to Oberlin Conservatory. She studied opera music. She went off to Europe for quite a number of years to become an opera singer. And sometime in the 70s, she returned to the U.S. and she got very interested in environmental causes. She got so interested in environmental causes, and first it was international causes, she decided to give all her wealth away to environmental causes. She gave over $750,000 away, including the house of her great-grandfather that had been bequeathed to her. Um, And then she started looking at American Beach because you had this prime um, piece of beachfront property that developers were just drooling at, right? Maybe we could put up a hotel or, or another golf resort. And what that would mean is they'd have to cut down the maritime forest and all the other things that they would have to do to turn that piece of history and that place right into a resort. And Mavin decided to fight that. Right, and for Mavine, she said to me, it wasn't only about um, protecting, you know, the maritime forest and protecting the beach itself and the sand dunes, but it was also about protecting and honoring the African American history in that place. And both of these things were intertwined. So the memory of what happened there, the the multiple memories that what happened there, people would understand and know that's part of the story of American Beach, as well as the fact that you can sometimes see a whale sighting from the beach and um, you could play on the sand dunes. So this is for me, and this was just one story in many that I heard from people who were um, intent on Again, honoring the memory as well as the place itself, Virginia Key Beach, which is in Miami. Virginia Key Beach is 82 acres of nature trails and beachfront property, and it's like right in the middle of Miami, and this was also another place, place that was a black beach back in the 40s, and uh, after segre- after segregation ended in, uh, in the 60s, the beach got closed down, and people were wondering what's going to happen, developers got interested, but then a bunch of concerns Citizen got together, predominantly African-American citizens, many of them who had been part of and used that beach when they were younger and said, we've got to save this place, Mm -hmm. not just the 82 acres of nature trails, but also the stories in that place. And they started collecting the oral histories from those African-Americans who were still alive who'd used that place. It's now reopened. It's a national historic site. Anyone can go there. And it tells stories of that place, right? So, yes, it has protected what is, quote, unquote, natural about that space. It had to deal with things like invasive species and and things like that. But it also tells these stories, the memories of African-Americans who had used that place to relax and and feel safe with their families and, and build their relationship with the natural environment.
0: Really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, and kind of going from there again in terms of this relationship to the natural environment. Um, one of the things you you talk about early early in the book, like in the in the preface, um, is uh, a connection in the let's say the popular imagination uh, between African Americans and or a construction of African-Americans as, as perpetual victims of environmental hazards. Right. And that's one of the the connections between African and, and African-Americans and the environment that, that comes most readily to mind. And, um, and, and later on in, in the book, I think in the, in the, uh, uh, the black faces chapter, um, you sort of talk about this, um, uh, connection and, and the sort of seeming other end of the spectrum of gravity, um, where you have the, you know, the absence of more inclusive interpretive exhibits, let's say, and diversity policies within environmental organizations. Um, so, so two ends of the spectrum, right? So at the one end, something that you you uh, describe as an, this being almost benign, right? This idea of, you know, um, um, a lack of interpretive exhibits. And then at the other end, things like Hurricane Katrina and what I, I kind of starred in my in my margins here um, as being really really interesting is the idea that you talk about these things as both in their ways um, uh, resulting in uh, at least potentially unequal access to resources and exposure, um, and I, I really would love it if you would talk about that and um, and just to make my just to hopefully make myself a little clearer. Um, the, the question really is about, I think it can be easy to sort of dismiss um, um, certain observations, yeah. um, you know, about, like I said, the, the lack of diversity in an environmental organization, um, because it's not as so obviously terrible as something like, you know, what happened to African-Americans in Hurricane Katrina. Um, yes. But, in your in your book, you really make a strong argument for why these um, how consequential both uh, both sorts of uh, of things are.
1: And so, for me, you know, every, first of all, everything is connected, right? And so, when I look at Hurricane Katrina, all the things that I, um, and then at that point, I was living in Atlanta. I had just moved to Atlanta. Actually, I was going to move to New Orleans to write up my dissertation, and I decided to move to Atlanta. And then a month later. Um, You know, what went down there. Um, So there's what went down there, right? Well, what we saw on the news, there's what went down there. And then there's what we saw on the news and in the media and how that story was represented. And, you know, we can talk about, you know, there's a set of processes and systemic issues that were in place. Racially, economically, uh, that helped to set the set the stage for what happened and the way that it happened, right there, in both nationally um, as well as locally within that place. We can we can look at. Um, Craig Colton wrote a wonderful book right before Katrina happened. His timing was just, oh, it was uncanny, about the environmental history of New Orleans and understanding that that place as a swamp had its own issues environmentally, right, even before people settled in there and, and then what happened over time and just how racially and in terms of class issues the city was divided in terms of who got to live where in what neighborhood and how that then plays out when something like Katrina happens. But then we also look at how, what stories were told in the media and how those stories were told. And so I think most of us know sort of the famous comparison of, you know, a white person in Katrina when, you know, is in the supermarket taking something they need, they say, oh, they're suffering, they're getting what they need. A black person is looting because they're, you know, in the store taking something they need. And just these kinds of representations that for me are bedded in, again, Historically, a way of talking about Black people in our country and viewing them that perpetuates this idea and this relationship we have, you know, collectively in terms with Black people and Black people in place. Uh, comment the comments of really just the shock quote-unquote, shock that so many people felt at seeing the way we were treating predominantly poor black folks in this region and how others of us were like, well, we're not actually shocked. This is kind of part of a longer historical issue that's been in place. But also the invisibility of other people of color, the native people who lived there, the largest, we have supposedly the largest Vietnamese community outside of Vietnam, you know, within the United States, in New Orleans. There were all these other people. We, you didn't hear anything about them. Right. So it became also a black and white conversation. Um, And again, for me, the media, like how we have the conversation, you know, what we see, what we think we understand informs what we vote on, what kind of policy we come up with, what we're willing to stand up for and fight for based on what we think we understand. And, you know, all of these um, agencies, whether it's government agencies, whether it's environmental agencies, they're made up of people. Institutions. I tell people this all the time. It is really easy for us to talk about institutions, corporations and government agencies as singular entities and understand they're made up with, of individuals with particular points of view. Right. And some of those were people like you and me who end up getting jobs in those places. So when you start to see these kinds of images and a narrative painted in a very particular way, for me, you start to understand why some of the policies and legislation that gets put in place and some of the social and cultural behaviors that get sanctioned become okay. Because, oh, you know, look look what happened at Katrina. Look what we think we understand about black people and Katrina. That is all our relationship is. One of the things I say to people... um, you know, people ask me, like, so do you call your work environmental justice? or How do you feel about environmental justice? You know, and I say, look, environmental justice is, yes, I believe in environmental justice. I believe what I talk about is in relationship to environmental justice. And black people aren't only the bad things that happen to them, you know. So I say to people, the reason I don't say that my work you know, out loud is environmental justice is because number one, there are plenty of people and scholars and activists who've been doing environmental justice work for years. And I, I want to honor that. You know, I just, I want Johnny come lately. I'm not going to say that. That's what I do. I say, I want to say, I would like to hope I work in relationship with them and I want to honor that. But the other thing is that for, for a while, every time somebody would say, well, you know, what's your book about? And I would start to say, Oh, you know, African Americans and the environment they say, Oh, you do environmental justice. Every time. And I would say, huh, that's really interesting. Just because I said African-Americans and environment, why would you assume it's environmental justice? Which, you know, which is an expansive category. But environmental justice started from a place of trying to understand why toxic waste dumps get placed in poor black neighborhoods. And really looking at, and in in important ways, um, the justice issues, you know, uh, on these communities. But we're not only about that. We're we're broader, we're bigger, we're more complex than that. And that's what I wanted to get at that expansiveness. And say, so that when I say African Americans and environment to someone, they don't just immediately think it must be about environmental justice. Because that's also the way that we policy, legislation, decision making around what should be done for any particular group of people in a particular area. That's how it gets narrowly defined. That's why it is still easy. And, I, I, and this is kind of rough for me to say this, but um, for mainstream environmental groups to wonder why we still don't see a lot of black folks and other people of color in leadership positions. You know. Green 2.0 study that Dr. Darcita Taylor and her team came out with this summer. It was scathing. It was fabulous. And it was scathing <laughs> because it pointed to, in my opinion, government institutions. And I would also add academic institutions and all kinds of places that are doing work around the environment and people to say, yeah, but look what we're still not seeing. It's still not representing the demographic of of the diversity of not just diversity of people in terms of ethnic and racial background, but also of of experience. And, And so this goes back to me, what I was saying in the very beginning about why I wanted to tap into different kinds of knowledge Because we start understanding what does it mean when we talk about embodied knowledge, that you don't have to have three degrees to be able to sit at the table and have something to offer, maybe even something that nobody else at the table thought of, because you've been living it for 30 years. right? Right? And for me, this is when I start to talk about issues of resistance and resilience and the way that black people, as well as many others, have been creative. They come up with ideas. You know, one of my favorite things to say to people is, you know, people talk about recycling, and I hear from black people all the time, you know, well my grandmother was recycling. You know, she was doing that <laughs> before we got famous because we had to. And and it, it's such a simple example, but there's plenty of examples like that of where black people We have had to historically think out of the box because when you've lived in a country that for most of the existence of that country as a nation has treated you as somebody marginalized and less than, believe me, to survive, you come up with creative ideas on how to do that and how to do it well. So, yeah, we got some
0: skills we could offer. I got worked up there. Yeah, well, as as well you should, as well you should. So, well, and and I, I think um, sort of on that note, um, because we'll 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 begin to to wind down here, right? You, you got wound up wound up just in time to wind down. Um, I I really uh, I do want to sort of and uh, both talking about uh, your parents because I think there's a really really interesting coda, unless you don't want to sort of give away the ending, but there's really interesting nope, coda to the, like, to the no. story about your parents um, in the epilogue. Yeah. And yeah. I, I definitely uh, would like you to talk about that, but I also um, want to sort of give you the opportunity on, on that last note to, to talk about your sort of favorite, um, your favorite sort of story. um from the oh, that's book. So hard you know, fun. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you want to, because there there really are just some really interesting um really interesting instances uh, yeah. throughout the book um, that you that you talk about with lots of interesting yeah. figures and I you know, I just want you to uh pick one and 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 tell us tell us why it's your why it's your favorite or most resonant.
1: Yeah. Well, I, it would be very hard for me to say what is my favorite, but um I want to say a couple of things. One, and I should have mentioned this early on. One of the reasons, and I was able to meet some of the amazing people I did, is because with as my community partner. Her name is Audrey Peterman. Um, and Audrey Peterman is an African-American woman of Jamaican descent who her and her husband have been doing work for years and years about getting black people into the national parks. And um, at present, she runs what's called the Diverse Environmental Leadership Speakers Bureau to have a bunch of diverse people of color uh, like myself who do work with the environment and making us available to um, environmental organizations like the National Park Service or the Bureau of Land Management or the Forest Service who say, you know, we don't know any people of color who do environmental work who can come speak to us. And we can say, well, yeah, we do. Here's a list mm-hmm. of who they are. But when I met Audrey, you know, and now she's one of my closest friends, um, I have to say, is that she was has been involved in this for years. And so she connected me, particularly in Florida, with so many amazing people. So in terms of like the story of Mavine Bech, that I told you, that mm-hmm. is I mean, Mavine for me, I literally, I have two plants and the only two plants I have actually come from American Beach. They're ferns mm-hmm. that Mavine gave me. I'm sitting here looking at them. I'm touching them right now because I know Mavine is listening. Um, Mavine is probably, is definitely one of my favorite stories, if not my favorite one. And one of the most powerful things anyone has ever said to me was what Mavine said, which was, I am the freest person you will ever meet. Because she said when she walked away from the money, she was able to do exactly what she believed in and exactly what she needed to do. Um, one of the sadder things for me is Malvina is no longer with us. Um, soon after Katrina hit, uh, she died. Um, but her legacy still lives on. So that's one of my favorite, if not my favorite story. Uh, But so is, um, I talk about Brenda palms Barber a lot. So I I give a lot of talks on this book. And I always tell her story as well. Brenda palms Barber is um, an African American woman who lives in Chicago. And maybe 10, 15 years ago now, she got a call. She used to live in Denver. Uh, She does business. She had gotten her degree in business. She got a call from some folks in Chicago who said, you know, can you come over to Chicago? We got a problem here. We have a lot of previously incarcerated black men and women. You know, they come out of jail, but they can't get a job. Can you come up with something for us? And so she was like, sure, I can do that. And she said when she got there, and she met some people and talked to them, and she thought about things like maybe landscape gardening, or maybe they can drive around the elderly. But none of these ideas seemed really sustainable over the long term. And then she said one day she was having a conversation with, a friend of hers just about something else entirely. And a friend started talking about beekeeping and a little light bulb went off in Brenda's head like, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have these young men and women make um, urban honey. Now she said, she said to me, you know, people must have thought I was crazy because this is like the West side of Chicago. How did I How that they were going to make a living. She started a company called Sweet Beginnings that makes urban honey and honey-related products, and you can find it online. It's, it's blown up big time. Um, she got a lot of beekeepers to help her, uh, a lot of things going on in the, in the area, but one of my favorite stories to tell, she said, is that – as part of that program and working in her company, she created something called U-turn, the idea that anyone can make a U-turn in their lives. And she would talk about interviewing some of these men and women for a job. And she'd interview them, she'd ask them their name, and they'd tell her. And she would say, they would say, so she'd say to them, so you were in jail. And um, she, they would say, yes. And she say, well, what were you in jail for? And they might say, you know, well, I, you know, I was selling drugs. And then she, she would pause for a moment, and then she'd say, well, were you good at it? <laughs> and they would usually say, yes, you know, I caught a course. And she would say, well, so what were you good at? And they would start talking about how they understood their customer base. They understood the quality of their product and everything that they rattled off, all that knowledge. She would say, you know, all that knowledge is transferable. So it was also not simply about giving them a job. That had something to do with the environment, but also recognizing that they had something to offer. She wasn't simply reaching out to them, but also building a relationship with them that gave them a sense of confidence and a sense of self and a sense of purpose um, in her organization. The other thing I want to say about it, it took, she said it was about a year before she realized she was running a green business. She had no idea about what green was or environmental she was just following her own instincts and her own creative um, energy on this. She wasn't feeding her bees sugar derivatives. Uh, she was acting locally. All the things that we see that define what it means to be green, she was doing anyway. So now she does it quite intentionally because she understands it better. Um, and I love to tell the story. I, mean, I I fell upon it accidentally because it was maybe five, six years ago. I was in Chicago for something else. And the Museum of Science there, Majora Carter, if you know Majora Carter, is amazing, who's been mm-hmm. doing environmental work. She started off in the South Bronx. She was giving a talk and I said, let me go hear Majora. And then that, before she got on, this woman named Brenda Paul, Barbara got on, told her story. I nearly fell out of my seat. I was like, oh, my God, I got to know this woman. Um, that, you know, for me, that this kind of story, you know, it's something for me, it's like, here's somebody who was thinking totally out of the box, but it was also thinking, thinking more fully about what we need as a community. So particularly as an African American community, how do you tap into part of our history? Um, how do you tap into a need that we have? What, is, what does it mean to actually be sustainable? You know, so she was really taking on that term, and what what was her commitment to the community in the long haul? So yeah, we're going to make some money, make sure people can you know get a paycheck, but also about being green. She said she learned all about the life cycle of the honeybee and really came to understand and respect that if the bee dies, we as human beings die. Like she has a whole you know she's learned a whole lot in that process, and that's the kind of thing for me. That story too was like wow, thinking outside of the box. This is like not even she's in a whole nother box. Like I don't even know what box. she's (laughs) it's amazing and how the environmental movement mainstream you know i'm always telling the story most of them have never heard of her and you know i can keep going on and on all day with all these amazing stories of people who are operating i would say both from the place of, of that they live in terms of understanding what's happening on the ground, what's, uh, is, is understanding what the community needs, but it's also operating from a kind of embodied knowledge of what it means to be African American at this time in this country with a legacy of a history that has informed them up to this point and to bring all of that, to bring all of that with love, with courage. Um, yeah, I think that's the, That's what just thrills me and excitement, regardless of what the mainstream is saying, regardless of what, you know, somebody was talking about in the 1950s Mm is saying, but this is what we need for now. And the last thing I want to say about that, that piece is before I talk about my parents is, and that is not only about, you know, coming up with creative, exciting ideas for the black community, but for everyone. Right. The idea that when we talk about climate change or any kind of environmental change, and that we need everyone at the table. That's what I mean. People who you wouldn't think about asking or building a relationship with or listening to may have an idea because we all can't hold all the ideas in our head. And you know, what's that old saying about if you're still doing the same thing you've always done, right. how do you think? That can how do you expect anything to be right. different? Right, right, right. And so the last thing you asked me about my parents in the epilogue, you know, I started off talking about my parents having to leave that land that I grew up on and now living in Leesburg and feeling, you know, pretty sad about that, even though they have a beautiful home. Um, About maybe four or five years ago at this point, I was visiting my folks and, the neighbors in the old neighborhood in New York will always send them letters if something new is happening on that property. And they sent them a copy of a letter. It was from the Westchester Conservation Trust. And the Westchester Conservation Trust had sent a letter to all the neighbors in the area because they were thanking the new owner for his conservation mindedness. They decided to put a concert, place the conservation easement on that estate. Um, and what that means is that in perpetuity, nothing on that estate can be changed. That land is protected. They had um, come to the conclusion that there were all these high environmental values on that place, where it sits in the watershed, the kind of wildlife on that property. And so they said it deserves to have a conservation easement placed on that property. And that's kind of amazing. What got me is when I, I have a copy of the letter, um, it's about a page long, how much they kept thanking the new owner who'd been on the land for just a <laughs> few years. Um... And I just want to add an aside to understand that once a conservation easement is placed on, you also don't have to pay taxes, which isn't something that my family and I knew at the time. Right? Um, I, and I wondered where the thanks were for my parents who had cared for the land for 50 years. And again, I started thinking about in our country, um, and we could probably think beyond that too. People who have cared for, worked on, lived on, been a part of a place of, of a piece of land um, who don't get acknowledged.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that is sort of a, a bittersweet note to um, to sort of end on. Um, but thank you for thank you for sharing that. Um, and again, I think one of the um, Uh, one of the compelling things about the book is sort of this intersection of um, your personal background as well as your uh, perspective as a, as a scholar on um, all of these issues. Um, I wonder if you would just tell us um, uh, what, uh, what projects you're, you're currently working on or things coming up and also your um, bit more about your uh, role in the um, national parks advisory board.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of a lot of things. This is a big transitional moment for me. So I, you know, I, I do want to say this to your listeners that I am in the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management at UC Berkeley, and I am the only African American, you know, tenure track person there. And the for two years, it's been a serious fight over my tenure, and whether or not the work that I do has value, and as, particularly in the way that I do it. And the big big um, point of contention has been over the way that I've written the book, that I've written it to be accessible beyond academia. So even though it's with an academic press, it's been peer reviewed. Um, there's some resistance primarily from some of the scientists in my department, because I'm in a large department of about 60 to 70 faculty that are predominantly scientists. And there's only a small group of us who actually do work that, that deals very specifically with humans, human beings. And, um, and I, For the moment, I've lost that fight. Right. So when I talk about black faces, white spaces, I mean that broadly speaking. When I talk about institutions, I mean that broadly. And to understand that this is a challenge. This is a challenge to what knowledge counts. It's a challenge to who gets to stand up and speak to it. It's a challenge, too, when we talk about media representations, who gets to choose what images are used, who gets to choose what stories are told and how they're told. Um, And I'm not saying that all of it is about people who are just bad people. It's not what I'm saying at all. You know, some people do bad things, but for some people, they don't know anything else. They don't have the capacity or the competency to actually engage difference on its own terms. So I think I think. Broadly speaking, we're under fire. I think this is a moment of opportunity in so many different spaces about, you know, reaching across that difference. Um, and taking a risk and understanding we cannot do things like we've done in the past. And so on that note, I'm working on a number of different projects that kind of get at that because I'm really interested in collaboration of continuing to understand issues of difference broadly defined of looking very more specifically at the African-American experience. So many people have told me about the story I tell about my parents and growing up on that estate. I've heard it. I spoke all around the country. They're like, you need to tell that story. We want to hear that story. And so a book that I want to write um, is actually, I want to write. I have already have a title for it, but I'm not going to say it just yet. You know, still so like right, right, you know, right. Do so yeah. it a little bit, but um. Is, this, is really the story about that estate, um, growing up on that estate. I want to talk about the, the, the African-American Jewish relationship in New York, particularly in the 50s and 60s, because that's a very particular uh, uh, relationship and experience, uh, particularly in New York City, to understand what that is, um, and more deeply delve into the ways in which my parents Imaginary, imaginary of the world. You know The way they've kind of created their map of the world, which came from their own experience of growing up in the South, and sort of their limited circumstances, even though they have much rich experience and stories, is so different from what was capable, possible for myself, and how those things come together. Um, I want to talk about that in terms of issues of identity and black identity and how we show up in place. So that's one piece. I want to... Um, Another thing that I'm doing is I work with, there's a group of about six African-American women students who are um, here at Berkeley, as well as one of them is getting them at UC Davis, who are doing, some of them have come to work with me and others I know that I work with in various capacities, who are doing their own work on issues having to do with the environment and African-Americans here in the United States. One of them is looking at cities and the idea of the green city and the chocolate city. One of them is, um, is looking at, has been looking at issues in New Orleans. The other is looking at the issue of maroon communities and the Great Dismal Swamp in the Southeast. And so we actually are doing something called Conversations Annotated. And it will either be an edited volume or maybe a special issue in a journal. We're not sure yet. But I want us each to write about the work that we do as well as write about what it means to be who we are doing this work. Because all of us are in spaces for the most part. Um, It's particularly working on environmental issues where we're often the only one in that space or one of the only ones in that space. And what does that mean to be who we are doing this work? And how does that challenge the way, you know, we produce knowledge? You know, again, pushing back on or expanding the idea of what knowledge counts and who gets to speak to it. Um, Another piece that I want to do that I'm working on is something called this patch of soil. Uh, I want to look at issues of I call it sort of naming, claiming and belonging. And so when I think about the black experience or even beyond the black experience to the way that people are able to name and claim or not a piece of land, a place and the issue of belonging it's something bell hooks talks about in one of her latest books on belonging, this idea of belonging and place and race. And when we start talking about nationhood and how we understand ourselves as citizens or as something else. And what does that look like? And what does that mean in terms of moving forward? I should stop there. I have other things I'm working on too, but that's it. And you wanted me to mention the national park service. So.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, and that, yeah, those those projects really do um, sound, sound fantastic. And I, I certainly hope um, that when they are, you know, as they, as they uh, come to life, you'll, 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 uh, Come back to speak, uh, speak to us about them. But, yes, please, um, if, if, you, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing um, a bit about your um, National Parks Advisory Board role.
1: Yeah. So I, um, maybe it was six years ago now, seven years ago, I had just gotten the job at Berkeley and I, I got a call one day from, um, an African American, um, man named Alan Spears who works in DC at the National Parks Conservation Association. He does amazing work, by the way, he recently had a book out. So I would, I would highly suggest you check, check him out. Um, and he said that the national parks, they were putting together a special commission for a year and they wanted people from a wide variety of um, experiences. So they had at the time, you know, Sally Jewell, who's now our secretary of the interior, but at the time she was the head of REI, which is an outdoor um, oh, Right. You know, outdoor business, uh, out, you know, they provide stuff so you can go camping and stuff in the outdoors. Uh, people like Maria Jimenez Hilza, uh, Latina, uh, newscaster, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, who used to be one of our Supreme Court judges, um, and a wide variety. People. They said, we want to get about the 15, 18 of you together for a year, have maybe five retreats at different national parks over the course of the year to talk about how is the national parks going to remain relevant in the 21st century? What are the most important topics we should to be looking at? I just got lucky to get on board. So they brought me on because, you know, I'm new on the scene. They said, Carolyn, you can come and talk to us about diversity now. I was like happy to do it because, I mean, the learning curve would be steep for me to be around such a – For a year, by the end of that year, we came up with, we thought education, how to bring science back into the parks, the issue of philanthropy, um, uh, the issue of um, vision in terms of, you know, the park has to be revisited. Of course, the, the issue of diversity and connecting people to parks, which is what the Park Service called it. But the issue of diversity, how do you engage diverse communities? What's it going to look like, especially with the changing demographics? Uh, and then when that year was over, they asked some of us. We got to meet with Secretary Ken Salazar at the time, who said, asked some of us, would we stay on the National Parks Advisory Board, which is a four-year appointment? So for the past four years, I was on that advisory board and I chaired what was called the Relevancy Committee. And the Relevancy Committee was again, how do we connect to diverse communities? How do we remain relevant to diverse communities? And I have to say, you know, the Park Service, I gotta give the Park Service credit. You know, you've got a lot of good people in there who really understand that the Park Service has got to do some things different. I mean, the Park a Parks idea is kind of an amazing idea if you can kind of just think about what it means to Protect these spaces that tell stories of who we are in this country, and some of these spaces are incredibly amazing. And I'm not just talking about the Yosemite's, but also our, our urban parks, like the Dr. Martin Luther King National Park in Atlanta. We have so many amazing spaces, um, and they also know that they have had some challenges in the past in terms of who works for the parks, you know, who the parks, you know, is attracting because because of public support, we pay our taxes, we show up. That's how they're able to survive. If we don't support the parks, the parks are not going to survive, you know, in the most simplest way. So they, the, the park service understands it has to do something different. And this is a, a service that has a reputation of, and a history of being sort of what's called an old boys network, where you, you know, you know predominantly older white men who um, are, you know, who are part of the park service. Now, this is changing. And has been changing, but it's slow to change. You know, it's a huge organization. I believe there are over 407 national parks and historic sites. That's huge, folks. <laughs> That's a lot of people and a lot of different ways to run different kinds of spaces. So one of the things that we talked about, that as chair, they said, you know, I got together a group of um, they allowed me to get together a group of people that I knew from around the country as a subcommittee to help advise on what they could do to engage diverse communities. And this was great for me because I was able to get some of the people I interviewed. I said, I want to get people we don't normally get asked to sit at this table. So let's get some community folks. Let's get some folks up in here who have all kinds of interesting knowledge. So we had Queen Quetta, the Gullah Geechee Nation and Audrey Peterman that I talked about before, just a right. wide variety of amazing people from different walks of life that we had a a meeting about this. And what most of us agreed upon was that the park service has to build relationships with communities and relationships of reciprocity, that it's not simply about outreaching to these communities, having them come to your table and doing what it is you need them to do. It's actually about getting to know who they are, what their needs are, and a relationship of reciprocity, what that demands is that you also have to change. So it's not them only changing, you have to change too. And that takes time. It's about long-term commitment. And what's sustainable about that? How do you sustain that over the long term? So what we did, we had a set of conversations set up in Cleveland, Ohio, because you have Cuyahoga National Park. And this is a couple of years ago now. And it was kind of amazing. And it was hard. I was an amazing superintendent there at the time who made it happen. It was multiple trips out there. And ultimately, we organized um, facilitated conversations with about five different groups, Boys and Girls Clubs, the Cleveland Hospital, just very diverse groups of people in the community to say, So the park could say, you know, we're here. We want to engage with you. I think there's things we could do for you because a lot of people don't know much about some of these parks. Mm -hmm. They don't even realize they're there half the time. You know, that there's something that the parks could actually do for them beyond, you know, you going for a hike there right in the park. Um, And so uh, in the end, it turned out to be incredibly successful. In the end, it was too successful, according Mm -hmm. to the parks, because they said what they realized, which is something some of us. Who were on the advisory committee could see from the outside was that their capacity to actually hold those relationships and meet those demands was challenged. <laughs> um, and, any more conversations because they originally wanted to try to do like seven around the country and then realize that their capacity, they didn't have the capacity to do that, that some internal work had to happen, which is what's been happening the last year or two that the Park Service is kind of turning inward a bit to really look at what they have to do and very recently and I'm just just—I'm just at the edge of this project specifically at a number of cities around the country to have some of these relationships with the urban communities and so that's what's going on now
0: That's great. And, and, and that, um, circles back nicely to this, um, to the point you made earlier about nature being everywhere. And so, um, the engagement, um, needing to be, um, at all levels and across all, um, yes. So that's, that's great. Well, thank you so much. Um, I really, um, really appreciate, uh, you being here today and, and, um, I really enjoyed, um, Really enjoyed the book and really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to you about it. Um, listeners, we have had the pleasure of uh, speaking with Carolyn Finney, um, again, currently uh assistant professor of environmental science policy and management at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of Black Faces, White Spaces, Reimagining the Relationship of African Americans to the Great Outdoors. Uh, the book is published by the University of North Carolina Press. Carolyn, thanks so much for being here.
1: Muriel, thank you so much. And thank you to your listeners for taking the time to listen to my story.
0: <laughs> Thanks.